First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? Welcome to Then Comes What, a monthly show where we open up everything you wanted to know and some things you didn't about love, sex, marriage, children, manhood, womanhood, and more. Hey everybody, welcome to Then Comes What. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. I've got Pastor Jake Menzel. He sounds like what? Like this. And I've got Pastor Tim Bailey. How does he sound? Like this. And Pastor Max Carell. I wonder what he sounds like. Hello, Nathan. Hi, Max. <laughs> Today, I'm going to start with a little story. So one night, me and the incandescent Meredith, we go out with friends. We are on a couch together. The evening is getting along. And what should happen? But I put my head on her shoulder. This was something of an early fight in our relationship because she said, well, really, later, like when we were processing the evening, she said, don't you think I should be the one to put <laughs> my head on your shoulder? Wouldn't that be us exercising our biblical sex roles better if I was deferring to you by putting... And I said, yeah. <laughs> and given the ways that our bodies are designed, nine times out of 10, that's probably what will happen. But I also really liked putting my head on your shoulder, and I would like to have the ability to do that when I feel like it, once or twice a year, if I may. Um, <laughs> so this was a, these are the kinds of neurotic conversations that we have. <laughs> Another story. I'm about 12 years old. I go to a big homeschool family's house uh, for dinner or something like that. And one of the girls who's there, she's about 12. She's, she announces, I've decided I'm going to take up bow hunting. And then all the, her, her brothers say, ah, bow hunting's not, Feminine? And she says, yes, that is the feminine form of hunting. If you look back in like medieval texts and stuff, and then the Greeks, you know, there's Greek goddesses, they, they'll hunt with both. Obviously, I wouldn't dream of hunting with a, with a gun, gun, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll hunt with a bow. <laughs> now, I tell both of these stories. Wait, you know, wait, wait a second. Are you talking about her hunting for men with a bow or hunting deer <laughs> or what? I'm yeah, she was. Confused. This was how she was going to bag herself, <laughs> a husband. A husband. <laughs> because you know you have the shotgun weddings. <laughs> no, this, so, is, this is a bow. Uh, Cupid okay. uses a bow. Yeah, Cupid so. uses a bow. No, no, no. She was going to hunt sparrows or something. I don't know. She, she, she'd taken it upon herself to figure out what the biblical way for a woman to express her femininity through hunting was, and it turned out that it was in fact using a bow. And so here's my question: <laughs> Feminine dispatch. Yeah, feminine dispatch. <laughs> What's the most feminine way to kill something? That's what we're <laughs> going to talk about today. No, what I want to talk about is a subject that we talk a lot about off mic, I think, which is reclaiming biblical sexuality, and that's something. Let's just assume, for the sake of argument, I think a lot of our listeners are on board with the fact that we need to be reclaiming biblical sexuality. That we it needs to be something that we're talking about and thinking about, and yet. My question that I want to start with is, how do we do that without being a dope? <laughs> to use a highly theological uh, <laughs> term, without being silly. I, I think the answer, the first answer to that question is that you can't. You can't. You can't reclaim biblical. Jake, this is this is you can't, you're saying you can't reclaim biblical sexuality without being a dope. That's right. Yeah. There's no way to work your way back to reclaiming something that's been lost without making mistakes and being stupid along the way. It's like anybody's repentance. Uh, when they repent of their sin, they move to extremes in the process of repenting and trying to figure out what godliness looks like. And that's just part of the process. And so young men who are repenting of being effeminate or just not being the kind of leader or whatever they're going to be, they're going to they're gonna swing to an extreme. They're going to compensate. That's part of the process. Young women who are repenting of their feminism are going to Maybe ask the question, should my husband put his head on my shoulder? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or is that an inversion of the roles? And I, I think that's, that's part of the process. And to a degree, we have to allow for there to be uh, some freedom and, some, and, and for people to make mistakes as they figure out what biblical sexuality looks like. Because we're all making mistakes figuring out what biblical sexuality looks like, just like we all make uh, many errors in in our repentance, but we're always working towards becoming more biblical and having 
having faith. And one thing we don't want to do is squash people's ability to actually repent and discipline them for the repentance because their repentance is as mature as we would like it to be. But while we shepherd them towards maturity and, and wisdom. Let me talk about this just a little bit. Yeah. So while you were talking, I was thinking about reclamation and immediately my mind went to the Dutch reclaiming land from the sea. Well, the minute you start having what is an artificial relationship with any force of nature, that relationship is going to be brittle and in some sense punitive because you're going against nature. Mm. And if you want to reclaim land from the sea, you can't any longer allow things to just go their course. Because from that point on, you are in artificial land, right? And I think that's what we've done with sexuality is we've passed the point at which anything can be natural. And now everything's rigid. Everything has to be sheer force. Well, then you try to reclaim it. And how do you take down part of a dike? Mm-hmm. You know, it's very difficult to do, right? Uh, I've never seen it done. And so we have to recognize the nature of the work and realize there's absolutely no way to even begin this job. I know this from preaching and teaching, from writing. There's no way to even begin this job, let alone make any successful strides in the job without just having a ton of seawater deluge you. You know, in other words, it's going to be a bloody mess trying to go back to natural after you have just built all these contrary constructions to nature that we've built today. And so I think to some degree, the first thing we have to say is we've got to be philosophical about this. And I think, you know, as an older pastor at this point, you know, Edwards used to be attacked because of the wacko friends he had during the Great Awakening. And it teaches you a lesson that it's the nature of the work of God that you're going to be associated with people who are wacky in a way that you really aren't comfortable with, but they will proclaim themselves your friends. Well, this is what's true when it comes to restoring biblical manhood and womanhood, or the diversity of sexuality that Jesus said when from the beginning he made the male and female. And so we have to be very loving and tender and patient with friends who are going to get us whooped in the public media, social media, who are going to get us whooped in the church, you know, because I remember there was this guy in our church back in about 1992, and he stood about 6'5", 6'6", big, big beard. His wife was about 6'2", or 6'3", very feminine. He was very masculine, although he was an excellent cook and would have groups of men over to his house so he could cook them a meal. And she played the flute, which, of course, I don't have to explain that. She was a Wheaton grad. He was an engineer. But anyhow, after getting to know them just slightly, I realized that he was passive with his wife. And I said to him, Tim, his name was Tim, I said, Tim, you need to lead your wife. And I didn't say that because she was rebellious. She wasn't at all. But I just saw that he was just active at work, but at home just kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's all his pastor had to say to him, and so he decided he was going to lead. Well, the next time, like in the next week or so, Mary Lee calls his wife, Anne, on the phone, and she says, hey, Anne, can you bring cookies to women's Bible study, or I don't know what it was. And Anne said, well, I'll have to ask Tim for permission. (laughs) And Mary Lee tells me that, and then we look at each other, and we want to pull our hair out. It's like, dude seriously, from no direction, like a rolling stone, to I'm going to have to ask permission to bake cookies. (laughs) And yet that is the way all of us readjust our relationship with the sea when we put up a bunch of dikes. And it's not going to go easy. And so that's one of the things I wanted to say. There's another thing. We had a man come into our church who had been fully involved in homosexuality, okay? And he came in not just a sodomite, but he came in gay. And if you can get the distinction, he, he was not just- around a little purebred rat fink of yeah, a dog. Yeah, rat fink of a dog. Him. He carried it with him. Where He was very was good looking. He was a musician. He was thin. Uh, you know, he was the sweet shoes. spot. You know, if you're on the make in the Castro, he's the sweet spot. And it was very interesting. He repented, and then he went with one of our elders and had our elder teach him how to bow hunt. 
And I thought, that's fascinating. That is a good way for him to repent. And it's kind of funny. He got he got the prize buck that first year, and he got it on this elder's property. And I think there was just maybe a little bit of wistful sort of maybe envious jealousy on the part of the elder that <laughs> this this punk, you know, that he taught to Bohan had just taken his prize buck, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to say is that I was a little leery of him because repentance from deep sexual sin is a very, very difficult work. And you have to watch and wait and see what the fruit of repentance is, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. When I actually began to have confidence that he was repenting of his sexual sin, which is what feminism is, which is what abdicating men is, they're all forms of sexual sin. As a matter of fact, you could say feminism is homosexuality. You could say that abdication is homosexuality because it's it's reducing the duality, the bifurcation to a, to a monotone, okay? Anyhow, I actually, when I saw him begin to put on weight, I went up to him and I said, you know something? I think that this is godly repentance because it's so hard when you have been a, what would you call him, a, you know, just a good-looking young man who would have been attractive to anybody who... Yep. Uh, and you put on weight, and that's really the end. And I, another man who was involved deeply in homosexuality has told me the same thing, that he made a decision that he was going to put on weight. He was in perfect condition. So sexuality, it's hard to restore any natural relationship with it without having unbelievable embarrassment, having people do things that are embarrassing. But, I mean, so what? Jesus was embarrassed by the woman washing his feet. When is repentance ever not embarrassing? Yeah, and our our job with people who are repenting is to not be embarrassed of their repentance, especially not in a way that undercuts their repentance, that tells them their repentance is bad. You know, we need to we need to stand with them in their repentance and encourage their repentance. Again, we can come back to the to the man who's now placed the law in his household that, you know, his wife can't bake cookies without asking his permission and say, all right, dude, you need to chill out a little bit, right? But we also need to do it in a way that that doesn't undercut the work that he's doing, trying to get his household back to normal, swim upstream or break down the dikes, as, as Tim was putting it. I was thinking about why we're embarrassed about people repenting. I wondered if Jesus really was embarrassed by the woman repenting. I wonder if the only person ever to exist on earth that wasn't embarrassed by repentance would be Jesus. That the reason why we're embarrassed, we're embarrassed because we're ashamed of ourselves. We're embarrassed because we fear people are going to lump us together with that crazy person that looks so Mm -hmm. out there, you know? I don't know why else, but I I, I resonate with it. Mm -hmm. It's hard to watch repentance because, you know, maybe in some ways as I watch repentance, I have to acknowledge my own, the horror of my own condition and my own heart. And so I watch repentance and it's just uncomfortable because I'm a sinner and I have issues that need real repentance in my life. I really think that this embarrassment over repentance is a large part of why men are so soft and effeminate today. And I had this big conversation that I'll never forget with a, a staff worker from Campus Crusade back when I was leading our college ministry. And we had a bunch of young men who were coming alive and really beginning to be zealous for the Lord with all kinds of things, abortion ministry on campus and all kinds of stuff. And they were going around and they were like ready to rebuke any Christian that they came into contact with. And this conversation with this staff worker was like, you know, he was rebuking me because my guys were out of control. And what I said to him was, look, man, young men have to be allowed to make mistakes of zeal. What you don't want to do is tell them they're sinning by having zeal, which is what you do in your ministry is you say, because you're zealous, you're sinning. Let me take away your zeal. Let me take away your potency. Mm-hmm. You want to discipline it all away and make them into cowards who never learn how to use a sword. You think the sword's best hanging above the mantelpiece. And I said, you have to allow young men to be zealous and to make mistakes and then help them bring maturity and wisdom to their zeal. So it's tempered by wisdom and maturity, but not destroyed. When Max first gave the leadership of worship and music over to Jody, Jody had been over at the Royal Conservatory uh, studying early violin or Baroque 
Jody had then gotten a top scholarship here at IU at Jacobs School of Music, and he had been homeschooled. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't know how to describe him. He was feeling his way. And he was a perfectionist, and he was moving from the violin to the acoustic guitar, but with real drums without plexiglass behind him. So it was quite a transition. And actually, his drummer was a guy that came here from 10th Prez who was going to be the next Paul Hillier, you know, the director of choirs. And he had one of those little rat fink dogs when he showed up. Again, quite the change. Well, they began to lead the worship with acoustic, but also electric guitar, electric bass, uh, drums without plexiglass and real drums and really played. And it was interesting because this is similar to what happens with sexuality. What they did was they began to play. And, you know, there's a lot of things involved, the acoustics of the building that, they, that we were meeting in and everything. But they began to play too loud. As they led our worship, it was too loud. And we had a ton of complaints. And we would discuss it in elders' meetings. We discussed it in pastors' meetings. Max and I were both exceedingly uptight about it. We got decibel meters and registered it. We compared it to the sound of a symphony orchestra. Mm -hmm. We compared it to the sound of listening to a phone call with a pipe organ. And, you know, all the arguments were on our side. They were still, even though they were way too loud, they were still much softer than a symphony orchestra. And, and we proved it. But David and I knew it was too loud. It was too loud. And we had to decide whether having given it over to them, we were going to take it back. And my dad used to say that the one rule of delegation of authority is don't ever take it back. And so we just stifled ourselves, you know, Archie Bunker, eat it, stifle yourself, you know. David and I stifled ourselves, and we had people in the church who were hot, and we had intense discussions with the elders, and, and David, you take over now. Well, th they were learning, and they were finding out what it meant to run sound in a certain building, run sound with very lim a very limited budget for equipment. You know, what they found out over time is that they, that they had to have more power. In the long run, what you had to have was more power to make a quieter song, so, sound that was intelligible and easy to understand. And yeah, hear. what was our decibel level at, at bass? We had a bass of 60 decibels, I think, or 65 decibels, just from the HVAC equipment and residual noise. Yeah, the footprint noise of the- Yeah, and so it was very difficult, but eventually- Yeah, eventually they figured it out. They figured out how to- give power to it's just like singing if you're singing and you want to sing loud it takes this much breath but if you want to sing softly it takes more because you have to control that sound in such a way that has to be very carefully done i think i'm right about that yeah. okay and so they just had to figure these things out find their way and mature in the process of doing it and and the thing i want to point out is we haven't gotten to women yet. We're talking about men. There is absolutely no way for a man to repent of being effeminate, of being a soft man, of being an abdicator. There's no way for a man to repent and work towards being a man without zeal playing a big part in it, and often zeal for things at levels at which are insane. And I am convinced, as I look back on, I would say, almost a year of us putting up with way too much volume. I am convinced that if we had s subverted the process of them naturally growing in their leadership, what we would have done is had an end to the complaining of the congregation. But I'm convinced that we would have terminally taken away their zeal for the praise and worship of God. That's what I'm convinced of because it was so zealous. You know, you can say it was too loud. But it was also very zealous. They demanded that we enter into worship in a way that I had never entered into worship before because they were out there at the edge of the cliff and you couldn't leave them hanging out there. In other words, when you're leading men who are embracing manhood, you can't just send them out and then laugh at them. You have to join in their mistakes and give it your all. 
if we don't do that, manhood will never be restored in the church. And, you know, I, I don't know if anybody knows that this is the town that two people, Herman Wells and, well, three people, uh, Alfred Kinsey, Herman Wells, and Bobby Knight built. And do you remember Bobby Knight's, tell them some stories about Bobby Knight with the press and how he would use his relationship with the press to take pressure off of his players. Oh, I, I mean, that's just what he did. He just made himself a lightning rod. And Explain that, though, because I didn't know that. You want your coach to be out in front for you, and you want to feel that he's got your back. And so what you get with a good coach is somebody who will take all the heat in public, and then when you go to practice, he's going to make you run suicides until you puke for your, your mistakes. You're going to get the discipline behind the scenes, but you're going to get the affirmation. He's going to be out front. He's going to stand in and take responsibility for the team because he's the head of the team. And that just makes you love the guy and respect his discipline of you because he's your guy, you're his guy, and nobody's going to get to you without going through him. And that, that helps you accept and embrace his love and discipline and the, the suicides and whatever else comes behind the scenes. He's my dad, right? He's going to fight for me, but he's also going to discipline me. And you've got to be able to to do both. And and so as a pastor, the sheep need to feel that you're out in front and you're going to take the hits and the blows and create the space for them to repent. When you screw up, he's going to stand up and go and talk to the pastor who comes to accuse you and say, listen, you have to give people space to repent. Yeah, he screwed up. So what? And then he's going to come to you and he's going to discipline you for screwing up. Yeah, he's going to come to you and say, "What? what is this absurdity that you're telling your wife she has to get permission from you to bake cookies? You know, this is the kind of, uh, <laughs> I want to get back to the wooden stick figure. Mm. Can we go in that direction? Well, why, why do people, given everything we've talked about, when they repent, we have to make space for people. Mm -hmm. Why, if you simply make space for people, do so many of them land there? Land in rigidity, land in it's formulas. Easy. It's easy. It's easier than faith, right? People want easy answers. They just want to feel like they've got a formula, like they've got some principles, and then they just want you to validate them in those formulas and in those principles without ever calling them to exercise any real wisdom or discernment or to live by faith. Nobody wants to live by faith with wisdom and discernment because that requires constant tension. What they want to do is exercise all their discernment out front. So if I subscribe to the Barney Fife School of Thought or the Prairie Muffin School of Thought or the Homeschooling School of Thought or the Classical Christian Education School of Thought, I've done all my discernment up front. Now I don't have to think about engaging with my kids on their education or actually uh, living with my wife in an understanding way and what that means because I've got some principles. And so everybody wants to default to some kind of rigidity because it requires faith to, and difficulty to live in, te in tension. Marriage is a dance, and it's hard. And leading your wife and living with her in an understanding way is not something that you can just plop the formula down for. If it was that simple, Scripture would give us a formula, but it doesn't. It gives us some principles, and we have to figure out how to apply them. I see this all the time with Reformed men who are elders and pastors who They'll just put a picture up of a drum set leading worship, and that's all they need to say to each other, and they know they have wickedness in the worship of that church. And it's just so hackneyed and pig ignorant, pig ignorant. And yet, they've made the point, this is a shibboleth, or the opposite is shibboleth with them. They know what they all condemn. And what more is there to say? There's obviously no reverence, there's no awe, there's no, it's because just- drum set. Yeah, because, because there's a drum set. There's no syncopated beat. <laughs> yeah, no syncopated That's beat. That's what we don't have. No, 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 you know, Bob Larson of years ago, no tonal vibration that touches the groin area, which is just such a bunch of bunk. If you know anything about pipe organs, you know, it's like, why do we love pipe organs? Well, an awful lot of it actually doesn't have to do with the upper register and the tiny little pipes. It has to do with the humongous pipes that are down there on the pedals. And so we don't just do this with sexuality. We do this across Christian maturity and sanctification. How do you guys see people doing this with sexuality? Jake, you said Barney Fife and Prairie Muffin. I'm not sure our listeners 
Those are terms we like to throw around behind the scenes here, but yeah, those are just categories that we've have become part of. I guess the part, the way that we speak about it in our church, and it's just Barney Fife is the the young man who's decided he's going to take authority over his situation, and he's Notice just going to tone going up. <laughs> he's going to take authority. Yep. <laughs> Dang it all, Andy. <laughs> well, I found this guy jaywalking, and uh, so I threw him in jail. <laughs> you know, because um, he broke the law. <laughs> I guess the the better example of prairie muffin would be going back to the incandescent Meredith, the mm-hmm. woman who's going to she's going to make a principle that she's going to impose on her husband mm. <laughs> and on her home that the husband shall not put his head on her shoulder because that would be an inversion of their roles. And all the while, what has she done? Now I'm I'm completely in agreement with you, but I just it's a dance. And the fact is, we tell women constantly that you have to teach your husband how to be a man. It, it really, manhood, and I don't want to be discouraging to single people, brothers and sisters who are single, but really, there is a learning process about manhood that you never come to until you get married, and then until you have children. In other words, with the increase of responsibility comes an increased understanding, and your wife helps you with that. Yeah, yeah. in the case of a man putting his head on his wife's shoulder. There's a time when, hey, that's just a nice, sweet thing to do. And there's a time when a wife should say, you know, I'm not your mom. The dance is what we want to preserve and what we want to fight for. Because the dance is the dance of, of faith. It's, and the dance is where you grow. That's exactly right. Where there's where there's a willingness to to live with tension and to grow and to grow in godliness and to grow in understanding what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a good husband yeah. and a good wife. One of the things that just frustrates us, if I can just look at the four of us, one of the things that frustrates us more most often, I think Max, you're going to agree with this, or Dave, or what do we call you on this, David or Max? David Carell, Max. One of the things that frustrates us is when we have a good woman who is married to a man with some sort of obvious problems. And when we work with them as a couple, we find that the woman isn't helping us. It's so demoralizing for pastors to find out that even though the wife often is frustrated with those things, she has some hackneyed notion of what submission what is. What her difference that is. That like, yeah. submission is. Uh, forswearing helpfulness. You know, David, am I right? Doesn't that drive you crazy? Yes, uh, there's a a false submission. It's like it, it maybe is the prairie muffin thing on steroids, where they come to the they come to it and they just. I'm not going to tell him what he ought to do. I'm not going to say it's not what my I place. Think. It's not my place to do that. And that whole process itself is manipulative. And yeah. counter to help. Alongside that's the wife who's just, her one comfort in life is that she has a bad husband and it's just her cross to bear. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this kind of like spiritual m- m- masochism that, you know, I've just got to. The wife of the alcoholic. Yeah. Often women like this. So if Barney Fife is always trying to somehow artificially get the gravitas and masculinity of Andy Griffith, okay? These women are trying to use usually external or verbal tools to clomp down on a reputation as being very feminine, very Mm -hmm. ladylike, very feminine. It's just disgusting. I don't know why to say it's disgusting. I think partly because we we actually, okay, we actually are all snowflakes. And we actually all do have traits that go in the direction of the opposite sex, right? There is a reason that they say that there are three sexes, men, women, and clergymen. And there is a reason that men commit adultery who are in the pastorate. Because they believe their press when women tell them that they just wish that their, they, their husbands were like them. Why? Men in the ministry tend to be more sensitive to feelings and more relational and more verbal. I remember when I got tested, uh, I took the MMPI, the Minnesota Multifaceted Personality Inventory and the Theological Student Index and a bunch of psychological stuff. And my presbytery out in Boulder, Colorado had me come out. They paid for the trip from Massachusetts, which was nice. And it was to meet for an evaluation with a psychiatrist that was part of coming under care and 
proceeding to ordination. I get in the psychiatrist's room, office, and he, he has my tests there. He's never met me. And he looks at me and he says, are you homosexual? And I'm like, Mm, you know, mm, no, you know, you just don't really want to know what's going to come after you answer no, you know. <laughs> In other words, what on earth did you ask me that for? You know? He says, are you homosexual? I say no. He says, well, he says, your profile matches very much the profile of a homosexual, but don't worry about it. He said, we found that a homosexual profile is very much in conformity with the successful profile of somebody in ministry. And that was back in what, 1979. So we have to realize that if we set up these wooden stick figure, Andy Griffith, prairie muffin things of, I bake cookies, you know, remember Hillary Clinton, I ain't sitting home baking no cookies like Tammy Wynette or who was it? Loretta Lynn. I don't know who it was. She was making fun of women that are at home and bake cookies. But don't all of us love women who are at home and bake cookies? So it is a dance. It is a dance. And in any dance, people have to have the freedom to fall, to step on toes, and to get better. So you're talking about making a lot of space for people to do that work. What principles can we give people as far as how to get better? I would say one of the biggest problems with people who have gone weird uh, when it comes to sexuality are people who have gotten their sexual, they, they figured out something's wrong and they've gone out on the internet looking for somebody to validate them. They found a book or a blog uh, and they're trying to apply what they're learning doctrinally with their minds about biblical sexuality from a distance. But a lot of biblical sexuality is something that has to be caught more than taught. And what they need to do is get themselves plugged into a church that embraces biblical sexuality and is a community of people who are figuring it out, who have fathers and mothers who can model what it looks like. Because so much of what you have to do really is you've got to catch it. You've got to be fathered and mothered. You have to be discipled and helped by people who are ahead of you in the process of figuring out what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And he can correct you and speak into your life and tell you, you're trying to apply this truth over here. I see that. But you're applying it like a, an idiot. So stop. I feel like every episode ends this way, but that's depressing because yeah. I don't have a good church. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for nothing. Yep. Sorry about look, you. Look, this church exists only because of the faith of a ton of people like Mary Lee and me who are repenting. And for years, it was this tiny little, you know, I used to sing in my brain about this church, you know, Tom Petty, don't have to live like a refugee. We were a bunch of refugees. And so enough with the pity party. I was just sitting here thinking what I would want to say to people who are repenting, who are men and women. And I think that honestly, if I were to single out one single thing for men who are trying to leave effeminacy beyond, or sodomy, or bisexual, whatever. The thing I would say is embrace responsibility. That's it. Take responsibility for others. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have children to do that. You can do that very well as a single man. And for women, I would say embrace your vulnerability. Vulnerability is intrinsic to womanhood. But please, for heaven's sakes, can we bring some objectivity back to sexuality? And then, having said, men should embrace responsibility, women should embrace vulnerability. I'm not saying go around and act vulnerable. You don't have to put on the act. You are vulnerable by definition when you're a woman. So men need to learn to be responsible. Women need to learn to be vulnerable. Let's start with responsible, and we'll ask vulnerable in a second. Can we talk about what, give some practical examples of what responsible looks like and what it doesn't look like? I realize they are infinite, and I realize that every one of them triggers a million questions. Cut the widow's grass. Just go cut it. Don't ask your pastor whether he thinks it would be helpful. Go cut the grass. Stop whining. <clears throat> Don't tell people that you're sick. Don't tell people that you are insecure. Take responsibility for your own sins and insecurities. Have small group at your house and cook. Serve. The way that you get responsibility is by serving. The person that you give authority and you delegate authority to is the person who bears responsibility. It has demonstrated they can be trusted with it. Yeah. He who's faithful 
in a few things or in small things gets entrusted with greater things. How would you answer that question, Max? Well, in the same vein and even in, well, all of these aren't really big ways. Pick the litter up off the lawn. If there's a spill, go get the mop and wipe it up. Take initiative for something you see that needs to be done. If if the children are running in the church service or after the church service and they're about to knock over the lady with the walker, even if they're not going to about to knock over the lady with the walker, stop them. Before they get to the place where they're about ready to knock over the lady with the walker. Before they knock the lady with the walker. Although be aware, if you ever mess with the children of the church, you're probably going to have angry parents. So that last example, just be careful. And <laughs> But I mean, Contacts you know, lead matters. your small group, for heaven's sakes. Give money to the church. If you're not fully employed because you don't feel the burden of having a wife and children. Feel the burden of providing for your church. Yeah, so that you can give to those who have need. You know, you're stealing from a church. If you only work half time because you're single and you don't really need, you're a programmer. You know, that's theft. God has given you an obligation. You're in a position to give more. So I work, I help out in the youth group. And the thing that I constantly observe among the young men is that no one takes responsibility for the conversation. They'll just be sitting there in a circle or standing around with their friends. And it's like, and it's not that I think every conversation has to be about the Bible or something mm-hmm. like that. But even if they're talking about whatever they're talking about, who's looking towards this conversation, doing anything to improve anybody, to help anybody, to mean anything to anybody, to be anything beyond ephemeral. And I'm not trying to empower every self-serious little punk that wants to oppress his friends. Yeah, with. Yeah, but that's not really what you're saying. You're not trying to get somebody to improve conversations, what you're actually doing is trying to get men who will take responsibility to put people at ease. Yeah. And, and to care about them, to draw in, you know, the loser on the sidelines to... Uh, because inevitably, losers are actually quite interesting if you can get, if you get them to talk about themselves or the things they love. There's nobody in any group that actually isn't interesting if they have somebody pulling them out in front of other people in a way that they're comfortable and can talk about what they love. Everybody loves something. And those, I think it's just so fascinating to find out about people's loves and their work and stuff. I've actually said that to popular kids before, like, hey, you realize you're popular, right? So you need to wield that power for the, for the common good. Yeah, what yeah. you do, other people will follow in. What you are interested in, other people will be interested in. So you don't have to be weird about it, but just, just know that and use it. What does responsibility not look like? What do people think it looks like that it... Well, a man who's a narcissist is going to be a narcissist in taking on responsibility. And that's the reason I said, don't ask your pastor how you can take on responsibility. Because really, when you do that, what your pastor says is, oh, he's heard some idiot say that taking on responsibility is how he impresses people. And so now he wants me to see that he's taking on responsibility. And so just forget about yourself and do it without thinking about it. And don't begin to correct everybody. Yeah, that's the direction I was thinking. A lot of what a a young man especially will hear when he says, when you say take responsibility, especially if you've disciplined him maybe once, is that what this means is I need to go around and put on my disciplinarian hat. Literal Barney Fifeism. I've been, I've seen this one hammer. And so everything's a nail. I need to go around and correct everybody in my manly way and just start telling them how stupid they are, how they're wrong, or how they need to stop being effeminate or how they need to stop being an Arminian or whatever it is, you know, whatever phase of repentance they're going through that's captivated them. You know, they need to not go around and smack everybody on the head with it. Yeah, that's interesting. It made me think that there is a distinction between taking on responsibility and being a leader. Leadership is delegated responsibility any idiot can take it on. And so don't think that because you're committed to being a man and men are leaders and leaders are men, that that gives you a right to begin to lead people. It doesn't actually. People choose their own leaders. That's a foundational principle of Presbyterian polity that you have to have the consent of the governed. You can't lead just because you're a man. And so what you need to do is take on responsibility that's hidden. You know, like Max said, pick up the trash. I cannot tell you how often 
just this week, I drive into the church and there's a big paper cup sitting at the bend in our church driveway. And then I look at all the cars that have gotten there before me. I think it was Sunday morning. And I just realized all the people that drove past that cup sitting in the middle of the driveway in the most prominent place it could without stopping to pick it up. You know, it's like, come on, take responsibility. It's your driveway. It's your bathroom. It's your, you know, the church bathroom. You know, if some kid before you is done you know what over the top of the urinal go get a towel and clean it even if nobody's watching especially if you are aspiring to be a leader you actually have to have faith that god in his due time will raise you up Mm -hmm. and so you have to do these things for the approval of god not of men you have to do them out of love for god and fear of god and not out of love for the praise of men or else Mm -hmm. Any leadership that you get is going to be just as fraudulent as you are. And so you have to trust God that when he calls you to take responsibility in little unseen ways, that that's going to accrue to you Mm -hmm. in God's economy, and he will give you the leadership that's appropriate for you at every step along the way. You just have to trust that. Put your head down and go to work. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you in due time. But it starts with just taking those baby steps, not because... You want to now have the dignity of of your manhood without ever taking the responsibility, the real responsibility that comes along that will get you to that place. You don't become a man of dignity and gravitas by pretending to be a man of dignity and gravitas and demanding everybody look at you with dignity and gravitas. What you do is you start repenting and taking baby steps of responsibility and dignity and gravitas begin to accrue to you. Can you tell them about Bob Kapowitz? Because I can't think of anybody in our church who has taken on more responsibility for others than Bob. Bob's a man in our church who has cerebral palsy. And at this point in his life, um, he's outlived what his his life. I don't know how old he is. Yeah, he's in his early 70s for sure. He's outlived his life expectancy by like, like, 40 or 50 years or something severe, crazy like that. Severe cerebral palsy. Yeah, he's at the place now where he's basically he's basically a quadriplegic who can only be audibly understood by people who work very intimately and closely with him when he tries to speak. And it wasn't always the case. He's 71. But what Bob has done for years and years and years and years is he's got a house and he takes in young men about five or six of them, um, single young men, they live at Bob's house and they take care of Bob and they have to help him with absolutely everything. There's nothing Bob can do on his own. Bob can't go to the bathroom on his own. Bob can't go to bed on his own. Bob can't get changed on his own. Eat. Bob can't eat on his own. Cough. He can't do anything. Shift himself in his chair. Or in his bed. Men have to get up literally in the middle of the night, set timers so that they can go and rotate Bob in his bed so he doesn't get debilitated with bed sores. And what Bob has done through all of that is he has been ministering to men and teaching them how to be men and to take responsibility for other people by allowing these hack 18, 19, 20, 22-year-old men to, to take care of him and to screw it up. And a lot of men have grown and matured and become men simply by being loved and cared for by Bob, allowing them to love and care for him. He loves them and he disciplined the men of his house and he'll kick some of them out and he'll try to set them up and do some uh, matchmaking and get them married off. He's Jewish. He's yeah, a Christian he's a, Jew. Yeah. And he's very much a Jewish matchmaker type, loves that work, he'll throw big dinner parties and invite, you know. A bunch of young women over for the men of his house and make sure that they've cleaned the house up well and are putting on a good face and you know or he'll take you know them out for something real nice he'll give some of them he'll give them in culture take them to the opera and take them to the ballet and and until a few years ago he'd take them over to europe take them to the big opera houses you know used to have season tickets to the lyric opera in chicago it's about four or five hours away and used to go yep uh, every summer, I think he still does uh, simply Mozart at the Met. I went with Bob. I lived with Bob, and I went with Bob to the Lyric, and I went to with Bob to New York, and uh, mostly Mozart, and got to meet Josh Bell because he's friends with Bob. 
famous violin player. And we have double bassists at the Lyric. It's from our church, yep. Andy Anderson. and Had lunch with them. I I refer to Bob as the finishing school for, for husbands and men in our church because there are men who get kicked out, who get kicked out for bad reasons. And the reason is they will not bear responsibility. They <clears throat> They complain. They don't get up in the middle of the night when they should. They're late. And Bob kicks them out. But other men he kicks out because they're using service to Bob as an excuse to avoid marrying and starting their own household. And one of our dear friends, all of us here, one of them, is a man that I just remember visiting Bob in the hospital at that time. And this man's brother was there. He was in Bob's house, or no, I guess he just left. And this man was really the, you know, one of the better guys in Bob's house because there's always, what, five? four to six or so. Bob and this man agreed as I stood there at the bed that this man needed to go. That if he didn't go, he was not going to mature. He wasn't going to. And so I, I asked Jake to talk about Bob because if there's ever a man who has the ability to whine and be a narcissist, it's a 71-year-old man with cerebral palsy who can't even communicate on his own. And Bob consistently, he gives gifts at Christmas. He gives me at Christmas every year a full calendar of jackasses with their mouths open, okay? And it's just delightful. And they have funny sayings and, and you know, he, he loves to call men jackass. He, he says, oh, he My name is Jake Ass. Yeah, 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 Jake Ass. So that's, that's your name, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so there's really no excuse for men who won't take responsibility and remain narcissists and whiners. And I am using terms that should make you ashamed if you're listening. How many times has Bob been a groomsman in a wedding? I was a groomsman if, in my wedding. If you just think to a year since he started having men in his house, has it been 45 years? Right. So Yeah, I think the figure is getting close to 100, actually. I would say. I think at, at a recent wedding, I asked that question, and I know it was more than 80. Yeah, and, it's crazy. And, and he has taken responsibility for those relationships, like Jake said. It's not just that people feel sorry for Bob. <laughs> you know, mm. No, actually, Bob's been proactive in, yeah. in, in matchmaking and <clears throat> helping young men figure out how to, how to woo a woman and- it's really sweet. But not every man can go to Bob's house. No. And the principle of it is not just about how you take responsibility at church or in your job, but if you're a young man and you're at home and you're in your parents' home still, right there, you can take responsibility. Yep. Right there, you can either choose to abdicate or do what you are supposed to do. Yeah, and you don't you, need it some- It can be a learning center for you if you'll commit yourself to- to being a man at home. Yeah, Tim's point, like he said, wasn't wasn't you need some big cathartic finishing school. It was that, hey, here's a grown man who's completely helpless and he's not a whiner. That's it. You have to shut up and get to work mm. wherever you are. All right, so let's talk about vulnerable, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. But first of all, I have to ask, the guys get a positive attribute. Why do the girls get like a negative passive attribute? It's interesting when you were saying that the, you were going to move on to vulnerability at the very beginning. I wanted to tweak what you said because you said, learn to be vulnerable and or something like that. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to say is, no, I do not think any woman should ever learn to be vulnerable. Never. What women need to do is to stop hiding it and stop resenting it and stop denying it. You are vulnerable by nature of your sexuality. You are vulnerable. And it's why men love you. And it's why children love you. And it's why grown men on the battlefield about to die cry out for their mother. You are vulnerable. And you are beautiful to us insofar as you don't ever try to be vulnerable. We despise women that drop their handkerchiefs in the mud puddle. You know, I mean, that's hackneyed, but <laughs> we, we despise I hardly it. ever see that anymore. <laughs> but we do love women who aren't embarrassed to wait for us to open the door. It's like, would you let us open the door for you without making it look like it's some mating ritual? 
Isn't it the definition of a prairie muffin that she tries to find as many ways to look vulnerable as she possibly can? Well, never being vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And every one of them, it's a principle. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm vulnerable. Get over here. Her her husband. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or her dad. So if you think about, you know, there's there's a red pill dude that is always beating up on chivalry and says it's everything wrong with masculinity today Mm. is that we accept, you know, chivalry. Well, the fact is, you know, chivalry itself was hackneyed. But for heaven's sakes, are we really that clunkly and insecure that we have to condemn all chivalry because it's hackneyed and, and we see so much bad example of it today? No. What we need to realize is that a large part of chivalry or a large part of being a gentleman or a large part of etiquette or a large part of being a man is trying to hide the vulnerability of women so they're not humiliated by it. And it's like, isn't that why we open doors? Isn't that why we let women go first? Isn't that why we go to war to protect our women and children? Do we really have to talk? about that time of the month. The Bible has something to say about being vulnerable to your husband, right? How is a wife supposed to win her husband? She has a gentle, quiet spirit. She has a submissive attitude. So here's the thing that a a lot of women just simply won't do, which is make themselves trust God, allow their vulnerability to be exposed when they're dealing with their husbands, and trust that God will work in their husband's hearts through their gentle and quiet spirit, through their submission and, and their deference, a fearful woman will want to raise her fists and present herself as strong and not vulnerable. And then she'll be surprised and hurt and devastated when force is met with force. Mm. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about uh, bearing responsibility for women. And I'm a little frustrated at even asking the question because I feel like you guys are all drawing a modesty panel over what you want to say about women and it's kind of sweet and so i'm pointing it out to my listeners but i think it might be helpful to give some more specific examples of the kinds of things oh women are just we're talking so about. vulnerable you watch your daughter grow up and you're uptight about how much weight she weighs because you're so concerned that she's going to have a man that loves her and her hair and you're so aware of her appearance and then you know she stays home and And nobody calls her and asks her out. And your heart breaks, you know, because you know that she has a gentle and quiet spirit and that she's beautiful and that she'll make a wonderful wife and a wonderful mother. And so it's not just your daughter, but it's you as a father that are vulnerable. I mean, this is a part of life. The very fact that a woman, even in the marriage bed, is vulnerable. The man takes initiative, the woman receives. And you think about the, Mary Lee was saying to me the other day that there's a movement among the pathetic generation that we live among. This is my wife telling me this. And she said that there are men now that want to enter into solidarity with women and having a period. And so they're carrying around blood in their underwear. And you just think, what on earth is going on that men have to prove that they're sensitive to women? when what really is needed is for them to allow women to have children and to take responsibility for that woman and the children. But instead, they're trying to like carry some blood around. And you look at the vulnerability of the body size, you look at the vulnerability of the upper torso strength, the disparity between upper and lower body strength. You look at the vulnerability of their ligaments, that they have ligaments and and cartilage that gives more than men's does so that when they give birth, it's not going to rip things apart. Well, then you send them out on a soccer field and guess what? They pivot with their knee and they end up with an ACL, right? I mean, I talked to the IU women's soccer coach in line at the Best Buy. He was telling me, how many was it? Do you remember? It was six or eight women that year that had ACL injuries on his IU soccer team. And so there are vulnerabilities that go with womanhood. I want to bring one more up because this is a big one. Typically, in marriage, in fights, women will start to cry. And there are a lot of women who, when they start crying, get very angry. And I think 
wives and women need to understand that when they cry with a man, God has designed men who are the most obstinate, argumentative, self-willed, pig-headed, stupid creatures on the face of the earth to melt when a woman cries. Any of you want to testify to this? Preach. Can confirm. So what do you say to women about that? Number one, don't, don't do it. Don't ever decide you're going to cry because- Don't manipulate it. Yeah, don't manipulate it. <laughs> don't manipulate it. Uh, don't reject it. Don't harden yourself. Mm-hmm. And don't resent it when it comes. But trust God with all of it and don't be afraid. Have faith to be beautiful, vulnerable, vulnerable, gentle, quiet woman that you are and to respond the way that God made you to respond and trust God to do good with it because he will. Well, let me say something about deference. I think that one thing that's imperative that we as Christian fathers teach our daughters is feminine deference. And often in discussions of this, women or feminist men will say, are you saying that every woman has to submit to every man? Submission is only for marriage. It's only wives who are told to submit to their husbands. And that's just a lie. And no, I'm not saying that every woman should submit to every man, but I am saying that there is a posture towards the sex male, which is female. There is a posture towards the sex male, which is female. And there is a posture towards the sex male, which is butch and aggressive and nasty. And every woman should be taught to cultivate some sort of public confession of her vulnerability as woman. And it just boggles my mind how so many of the most popular actresses, okay, if I can please use the word, you see this in them. And I'm not going to name names, but there's a reason why they're popular. And it is that in all of the sin that there is in movies and all of the immodesty and everything, that there are some women who actually have the ability of having a deferential relationship with man. You know, it is sad that Christians have taught their daughters to be aggressive, to whoop everybody in debate, to become attorneys, to go to internships with congressmen and congresswomen in Washington, to just whoop everybody. And it's absolutely repulsive. No, we don't want women to go out and find ways to parade or to cultivate their vulnerability, but we do want them to learn what are the parameters of it? How does it look? How does it feel? What have, constitutes it? Sorry, go ahead. Do you have some baby steps for somebody who's just trying to find their way? I mean, for the guy, we said, pick up the trash. <laughs> what is the girl equivalent of that? Put down your fists. Most, I think most of the ways that women are, are aggressive, and is the word brash, most of the ways they're brash are verbal. And I mean, there are other ways. There are ways in their posture and, and their dress and th- ways that they'll want, they want to shock you or basically lock their fist in the, in what they perceive to be the arm wrestling match. But I think most of it happens in how they talk because speech can be so aggressive and you can, you can be, you can aggress with what you say to put anyone on the defensive at any time just by how you talk to them, how you'll just come right at them. And if the question was, what's a kind of a first step? Well, how, aren't first steps almost all, don't first steps almost always involve our mouths and the necessity we have to control our tongues, men and women. But in this case, very specifically to control our tongues in terms of, of how we speak to the opposite sex. If you think about a, a hideous man sexualizing, catcalling, and oppressing a woman with his mouth, with his words, and how he ought to be smacked. But then you think about a woman, what she does is that she turns around and in her way of doing that with her, with her speech is to oppress men by aggressing toward them and being brash. Mary Lee and I just spent the weekend with a friend that I... I got close to when I was at Northern Illinois University before marriage, Susie Sheck, and uh, Susie has spent her life single. It was very interesting this week weekend because 
Mary Lee and I spent a, a, a good amount of time with her. And what I found so delightful about her is that after an entire lifetime of never having a husband, the delightful femininity of her, that she defers to men and she's proud of being a woman and she, she makes herself beautiful. And the reason I bring this up is earlier this week on Sanityville, our online discussion forum that gets its name from Sound of Sanity, uh, there was a woman who wrote in and said, well, so, you know, this issue of sexuality, what meaning does it have for a woman? All I've ever been told is, get married. And I did not want to spend time on that discussion, but I didn't want to let that sit there stinking. And I wrote her and I said, that is absolutely not what you should say be told. And I think so often women particularly think that they don't, aren't women until they're married and have children, and that a woman who's single is not really a woman, she's a person. And so when you asked early what she should do, what I'm immediately thinking is, for heaven's sakes, work in the nursery and stop being jealous of other women who have babies, okay? I mean... <laughs> Give yourself to the young mothers who are drowning in diapers and cooking and, and a bad marriage, maybe, and discipline and teaching. Be a woman. You know, Mother Teresa didn't stop being a woman because she was single. She mothered. And, and so that's another thing I would say is, guess what? Motherhood is not simply for the married. Motherhood is what a woman is. I had a friend, a daughter of a, a dear friend of mine. I hadn't seen her for quite a while, and she was going to show us around a city that she lived in, and she showed us around. She was very sweet to us, and then we went walking down by the river, and as we're walking, she looks at me, and she says, so am I not a woman because I don't have children? I looked at her, and she's a very tender, sensitive woman, but this time I decided to punch her, not literally, and I said, yes, absolutely, Susan, that's not her name. Absolutely, because you don't have children, you're not a woman. I mean, that's as obvious as obvious can be. And that's the kind of sort of rigid adversarial relationship there is any time you speak of motherhood to some woman who's married and doesn't have children or is single. And it's like, come on, God gave you not just breasts in a womb, he gave you estrogen, and from the estrogen pours out an entirely different approach to the world than testosterone. Yeah, and so give yourself. You know, I wanted to defend you earlier when you put your head down on Magnificent or, or Multifarious or Nefarious. What's her name? Multifarious, Meredith. Multi yeah. Okay, yeah, Meredith, Multifarious, mm -hmm. Multifaceted. Mm -hmm. Let's go for that. And I wanted to say that when a man gets wounded severely, many movies and many books have as their subject a woman nursing him. And often he falls in love with her and he marries her. I mean, honestly, there's something of that in David and Abigail. Isaac and Rebecca, she confronts him. She confronts him. And it is true emotionally also that there are times where we just simply can only go to the motherhood of our wife. Now, I am not in favor of any man calling his wife mother you know what I'm saying, and, and, and being mothered by her. But it is the prerogative of a man, precisely what you said, Nathan, maybe twice a year. But just you're just brutalized by the battle, by the responsibility. And one night, it's the night that you pr your prayers are groans, unutterable groans of the Holy Spirit. And you just lay your head on your wife's breast. And so I don't know whether that... Well, I said... Uh, uh... Isaac, because when Rebecca was brought to him, that's right. Yeah. She, he was comforted in the death of his mother. Yes, and I think that's just all connected to the reality that she could comfort him. Abraham couldn't comfort him. But I Rebecca think could. so much of what allows women to embrace their vulnerability is for them absolutely for swearing any bitterness, jealousy, or envy. And there are a few things that are uglier than a woman who thinks that God owes her a husband, owes her children. And so women are vulnerable to God in getting married and having children, having children who aren't invalids, who aren't uh, genetically harmed. And so you can't be 
jealous as a woman, which is sort of the nature of woman naturally. Uh, you can't be jealous as a woman and be vulnerable because jealousy is the demand that God not allow you to be vulnerable. And so there are certain sins that will remove your vulnerability. It's not just brashness with your mouth. It's not just aggression, but it's also pity parties and whining and complaining. It's really interesting how much a, a narcissistic a narcissistic woman and man end up being the same in the end. You know, they're both demanding that the world give them fulfillment as a husband, as a wife, and children and, and stuff. I was thinking about Nathan's original thing, talking about the, the young lady in the family, the homeschooling family, who decides she's going to hunt with a bow. And that is a picture of the reality. We all look at that. And in our culture today, we think, okay, a war, war, not warrior woman, but hunter woman. And you can go on the internet and you can find pictures of women who are big game hunters and women who've gone and, and bagged the buck in the, in the woods. And, you know, they've got their picture with their prized deer and all these kinds of things. But the fact that it, it really does go against the grain in our hearts because women aren't the ones we think of as the killer. That's not the thing they do. And I'm not saying my grandmother didn't wring the necks of chickens, right? But chickens, that's something different altogether. They ought to die. <laughs> but but no, you don't think of the woman as the stalker hunter that's out there that's going to deal with this kind of a mess. Because she's already Because she's the nerd. Well, but even if she hasn't done that yet, you don't want her to become harsh. Because she is the nurturer. Mm -hmm. You don't want her to be the, you don't want to turn a woman into a warrior because it destroys the fabric of who she is. She is, she's made to be a nurturer. You know, so the more you turn her into the warrior, the more that, that beautiful creature that God made her to be, it disappears. Well, let's sum it all up because I want to make sure it sticks. Let me just ask the original question exactly the same way that I asked it. How does, Someone embrace biblical sexuality without being a dope. And the answer is still, you can't, not really, but if you live by faith and treat it like the dance that it is and are committed to living with the tension of making mistakes and growing and learning from your spouse, then you'll do okay. Especially if you're a part of a, a church where you can have people who correct you and help you. Then Comes What was produced by Nathan Alberson and executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alberson as our All Fine Warhorn products. You can send your questions for us to tcw at warhornmedia.com. That's T as in Tango, C as in Charlie, W as in Whiskey at warhornmedia.com. Warhorn.